Praise the Lord. Jesus. Amen. Well, today I wanted to wrap up the four months of talking about prayer with seven practical biblical statements regarding prayer. Seven practical statements in the Bible regarding prayer and the wisdom, the truth that we can glean from these today. And at the end of the service, we're going to have a call or a commission to every person in this house to an absolutely another level of prayer in your life. That if we want to see our world transformed, we want to start with Belleville and then our nation, we want to see it transformed. The transformation of the nation is preceded by prayer. We've just seen God moving even in our own service, but because we pray for an hour on Saturday night, can you imagine what happens when every believer is is called by God and spends time every day in the presence of Almighty God, the fruit that will come from his people pray. Because the Bible says, when my people will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and pray, then, everybody say then, then will I hear from heaven and will I heal their land. And our land needs a healing and it's going to come by prayer. Amen? It's going to come by prayer. You know, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you could only approach God through the law or through an animal sacrifice. That there was this people like David who cried out to God, uh, you know, all through the Psalms, did so almost, almost as an anomaly because the law basically dictated how God heard us or in what context we could come into God through feasts and through sacrifice of animals, etc., There was no revelation and understanding of the intimacy we could have because it was paved by Jesus Christ. So when David called out in the Psalms and he called out to God, God, he was calling out in a way that most of his other brethren didn't even understand because David was aspiring for something that was yet to come. And he had a glimpse of it in his heart, but he was aspiring for something yet to come. Jesus even says in John chapter 8 that when speaking to the Jewish believers, he said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. In other words, Abraham was looking forward to a promise which was yet to come, and that promise was in Jesus Christ. But everybody say, now. Now we live in that promise. We live in the fullness of times. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has paid the price. Jesus Christ by his blood has torn down the the veil that separated us from God, that we no longer need the temple. We no longer need the sacrifices. We no longer need those because the perfect lamb has been slain. The blood has been applied to our life and we have access to the father. Jesus came to restore that relationship. In the Bible, the Bible talks in Genesis that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the evening. They had a, a, an access to God that, that anyone else in the Old Testament could, could not even comprehend. And that access was destroyed through sin. But Jesus came to restore it once again. Jesus came to restore that access. And so when we talk about prayer, when we talk about 
communing with God, when we talk about being in his presence, we're talking about a restored relationship. We're not talking about the limited prayer and understanding they had of the Old Testament. We're talking about a revelation through Jesus Christ that you and I walk in, a privilege of prayer that we have that we should not cast it aside or take it for granted. But instead, we should take advantage of it because Jesus paved the way. Not for us to take it for granted, but for us to take advantage of it. Amen? And so when we don't pray, when we don't take advantage of what Jesus paved the way for, I can think of no greater affront to Jesus than when we don't take advantage of what he has provided for us in prayer. And so every one of these practical statements that I'm going to read from the Bible today, these New Testament principles or statements of prayer, are ours because Jesus has provided the way for us to be able to walk in this kind of privilege. Everybody say privilege. How many know you're privileged? You're a son. You're a daughter of the Most High God. You walk with privilege today. Amen? And so that's what we're going to talk about. All right. First one, get your pen and paper out. Number one, James chapter 4, verse 2. James 4, verse 2, says simply this. You have not because you ask not. All right? Or, and I'll put in parenthesis beside that because James continues in the next verse. Or you ask in unbelief. So you have not because you ask not. Or you ask in unbelief. One of, this is one of the most simple yet profound statements in the entire New Testament and written by James. We, the, the scholars all seem to agree and believe that James, that wrote the New Testament book of James, was not the brother of John, but was James the Less, as they called him, who was the brother of who? Jesus. He was Jesus' younger brother. And so we have Jesus' younger brother, nobody who probably in an earthly sense knew Jesus any better than he did, because he grew up looking at his older brother all the time. Can you imagine being in the same house as your savior, growing up with him, wow, did he just do that, you know? And I mean, I know many people have grown up admiring your siblings, but this would take it to a whole new level, I'm sure. All right? So James, the brother of Jesus, has this statement for us today. You have not because you ask not. I wonder sometimes, was he constantly bugging his older brother Jesus to do this for him, do that for him, and Jesus just did it, and he got a revelation as Jesus gave his life for us that I can still do that even now as he's ascended to the Father. I can ask, and he's going to do it. That I have not because I ask not. I think it's incredible. Lay aside every one of your theological, uh, mental gymnastics about God's omniscience and the fact that he knows everything. And so do we really need to ask because he knows what he's going to do? All that stuff, put it all aside, all that theological mumbo jumbo that we love to debate back and forth and all the rest of it. The reality is, the reality is, is that James, the brother of Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. In other words, ask. Jesus commands us in prayer to ask. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. He who seeks, finds. He who knocks, the door is opened. That's Jesus himself speaking. And so he's commanding us. That's that's an imperative verb. Ask 
seek, knock. He's coming to us and he's giving us a command of how to conduct ourselves when we come before him. Later in Matthew 21, verse 22, Jesus said this, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. It's not a suggestion. Again, it's a comment about how we should conduct ourselves in prayer. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. This, these kinds of statements by Jesus are almost too bold for us to comprehend. There certainly doesn't seem to be much room for this type of prayer where you go, well, Father, you know, you know, I, I'd really like to have, you know, um, a breakthrough financially and, you know, and, and I'd really like to, to be able to raise my kids, you know, uh, outside of the realm of poverty. And I'd really like to have, you know, my, my neighbor come to you, Lord, but Father, you know, uh, if you want, if, you, if you're not too busy, is that the language of the Bible? It's not. In fact, there's only one time. Everybody say one time. One time that Jesus prayed a conditional prayer. Only one time. In the garden. In the garden, as Jesus is facing the moment of his life where he knew that he was called to go, and he was experiencing the anguish of the moment because he was about to die completely alone, separated from his father for the first time. And he was to be doing that, carrying the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders. None of us can even imagine what Jesus was about to face. And in that moment, Jesus prayed his only conditional prayer in the Bible. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, take it from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, for all these other things, you know, is it God's will to heal? Is it God's will that people be saved? Is it God's will that you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers? So, so when you pray those things and you're praying for those things, why do you pray these? Well, you know, if you, if you want kind of prayers, because that's, there, there's, no, there's no place for that in Scripture. We already know the will of God. The only time Jesus prayed that conditional prayer was because when he saw the will of God and the mountain that it was in front of him was so large in his flesh, he knew this was going to be the most difficult thing that any being ever born could possibly imagine. And that's why I said, if there's any other way, but nevertheless, your will be done. Otherwise, Jesus always just said, rise, be healed, speak, right? I mean, he just commanded those things into existence. And he said, whatever you've seen me do, go and do likewise. Hello? Father, this is how he's taught us to pray. <laughs> this is how he's taught us to pray. Jesus' directives to us to pray are simple. And James understood it. If you're sitting here this morning and you're, you're, you're in a season where you just don't seem to be getting any breakthrough, maybe Jesus is saying to you today, you have not because you ask not or you ask in unbelief. Amen? Number two. Number two. This one always confuses people. Seems impossible. First Thessalonians 
pray without ceasing. Kind of interesting directive from the Apostle Paul. Pray without ceasing. And he used this phrase, you know, in various forms many times in the New Testament. Listen to a few other references. He says in Romans 1, 9, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. 2 Timothy 1, 3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. For this reason, Colossians 1, 9, uh, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understandings. So what does it mean to pray without ceasing? What does that mean? Well, here's what I think. First of all, I think it means that prayer is daily. It means that prayer is daily. Though Paul, I don't think, was praying all day, I think every day he prayed. You understand what I mean? I don't think he prayed all day. He took time to eat. He took time to walk. He took time to talk with other people. He, inter- he, he preached. He did all kinds of things. He even made tents. He had some room to make tents on the side. But he maybe didn't pray all day, but every day he prayed. Prayer was a part of his daily routine. To have a life where you pray without ceasing is a life that's committed to a life of prayer where you spend time with God, you take advantage, as we talked about at the beginning, of the access that you have to God as a son or a daughter, and you spend time with him every day. Every day. Prayer is daily. I think the second thing that means is that prayer is a lifestyle. Again, though Paul did not pray every moment, every moment was a prayer. Did you get that? Although Paul did not pray every moment, every moment was a prayer. Keith Green had a song and he said, I make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. Remember that song? And what, what Keith was expressing, I think, is what Paul was expressing when he said pray without ceasing. That every moment of my day is an opportunity to bring glory and to praise to God. My life becomes a living prayer unto the Lord. My life becomes something which attests to him and to his truth. We should live lives devoted to God, dedicated to him each day. That's how we should live. There's tons of scriptures you could talk about to support this. But, but I think that's part of what Paul was getting at. And I think, thirdly, uh, to pray without ceasing is to pray living in his presence. Paul said in Acts 17, 28, he said, in him we live and move and have our being. We are made alive by him, we are sustained by him, and we're to live in his presence. And this is foreign maybe to some people because we're not used to taking advantage to being in his presence. But you know, the Gaithers used to sing a song, he's as close as the mention of his name. You know, it's like, Remember those Ma Bell commercials? This is going way back for the, you know, the baby boomers here. We'd have to reach back, but reach out and touch someone. Do you remember those commercials? And you'd, through long distance, you could actually phone. I mean, hard to believe it was a big thing that you could call on a landline from one end of the country to the other, and, and you could make this connection, and it wouldn't cost you an arm and a leg. That was what the whole 
campaign was about. Hard for us to imagine now because now we can phone anywhere in North America for free. But, you know, this, this was, and you're doing it from your cell phone while you're driving down the car, highway, Bluetooth through your stereo in your car. I mean, yeah, it's, I know, I'm dating myself. But the point was, it was trying to capitalize on the fact that at any time you could get hold of those people you love. You could be in their presence, so to speak. Well, this is the revelation that we have in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. You can be with him whenever you want. He's not playing hide and seek with you. Right? He's not, he's not trying to be undiscoverable. He's not trying to be mysterious. He's not trying to be evasive. Jesus invites you into his presence and literally you don't have to leave. Are you hearing me this morning? To pray without ceasing is to recognize that I can be in his presence all day long. I can walk with him. I can talk with him. I can spend time with him. Mm. Mm-mm. Mm. You can be in his presence. And so I, I, I think that if there's anything that probably if I could put it this way, hurts the heart of God. It would be the fact that his children neglect the access that Jesus died to provide. And we just don't spend time with him. Why? And, and I've been guilty of this so many times in my own life where I've had access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there's so many other distractions that we spend our time at instead. When we could be in his presence, we could be devouring his word, we could be talking to him, to pouring out our heart to him, we could be connecting with him, we could be letting him love through us to other people. There's so much that we could be doing. And I think he's sitting there going, "Ah," as we walk by and ignore him, Again and again and again. Number four. Everybody say number four. You're not going to like this one either. Pray for your enemies. Mm-mm. Mark eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. This is a good one because if you pray for your enemies, there's freedom and liberty available for you. But I say to you, love your enemies, Mark, Matthew 5, 44. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. I got to admit, I don't even like that verse. I'm just being honest and transparent here. I don't like that verse. Love your enemies. Well, what do you mean by love, Lord? <laughs> How much do I have to love them, right? Bless those who curse you. What? Right? Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Wow. It's hard to pray daily for the people that love me, let alone daily pray for the people that hate me. Anybody know what I'm talking about? My goodness gracious. <sighs> you know, I want to I read to you the following verses following that statement, Matthew 44. Listen, 
Let's start back at 44 again. He said, but I say, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Then he says, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Is this a condition of walking as one of your sons or daughters, Lord? Help me, Jesus. For he makes his son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? If you're patting yourself on the back, in other words, because you love the people that are reciprocal, that love you back, what reward is in there in that? You haven't done anything special. Do not even tax collectors do that? It's funny that in the Bible, the, the, the worst is a tax collector. Not sure what that says about our governments today, but uh, tax collectors get a really hard hit in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? Uh, And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? In other words, if you only greet pleasantly people that are brothers and sisters in the Lord, how are you any better than anybody else of any other kind of social club or organization? Do not even tax collectors do that, he says. Poor tax collectors again. Number 48, therefore, this is, everybody say, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Uh, In context, you shall be perfect. In context to me sounds like to be perfect is to pray for people that hate me. To bless those who curse me to pray for those who would spitefully use me. Then I can be bold enough to call myself a son or a daughter of God and be on that pathway to perfection. Wow. Wow. When you begin to pray this way, when you begin to pray for those who you know have it out for you, then you're going to change the world. You know, if I think back in my lifetime, I've I've witnessed a number of different things take place in the kingdom of God. There was a political movement back in the 80s. It was called the Moral Majority. How many remember that? Jerry Falwell and company, you guys remember that? And the, the problem as I look at it now, of the Moral Majority, is there wasn't much focus on praying for your enemies. The focus was on challenging and convincing your enemies they were wrong. And in fact, it wasn't pray for your enemies, it was fight with your enemies. And every verse they could find about spiritual warfare, they applied to political warfare, and that's what we were called to do. And don't get me wrong, I believe we should be in the political arena, I believe that we should be making influences everywhere, I think that we should, as Christians, let our voice be heard, no problem. I agree with that. And I think we need more Christians willing to stand up and do that, not less. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the nation is not going to be saved through a political party. It's going to be saved through men and women of God who are bold enough to pray for their enemies, who are willing to follow the scripture and do what the Bible says. And then we will see a revival in our land. When your enemies feel loved by you more than they feel loved by their friends even, they're going to listen to what you have to say. You know, the old adage says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? If you're praying for your enemies, pretty hard to pray for them every day and then get up and have a heart full of hate for them. 
It just doesn't work. How many know that's pretty difficult to do? Number five, everybody say number five. Matthew 17, verse 21. Some things only happen through prayer and fasting. Fasting, Matthew 17, 21. Through prayer and fasting. Mark 9, 21. So he said to them, this kind again comes out only by nothing but prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting, prayer and fasting. Why do you have to fast? What does fasting do? How does it change things? Well, the short answer is simple. Fasting works because it changes you. Fasting isn't about manipulating God. When you get, if you have this idea that if I just fast, then I'll change God's mind. If I just fast, if I can just manipulate him, like a little kid who's going to their parent and they're trying to figure out, what do I do to get an Xbox? Do you know what I'm saying? And so they try to figure out how can I manipulate mom or dad so they can come around to seeing my way of thinking. That's not what fasting is. You don't have to change the heart of God because God's heart is already for you, not against you. God's heart is already to do good things for you. He already delights in you. He already loves you. He already has his full heart expressed and delights in doing good things for you. So why do we fast? Why do some things not happen unless we fast and pray? It's because we need to change. Fasting changes me. When I fast, my flesh, my flesh is denied and my spirit is empowered. When we fast, we fast for breakthrough. We fast for victory. We fast to overcome. And we fast for breakthrough, victory, and overcome our own flesh. And, everybody say and, the flesh in others. If we want to see the flesh in others also defeated, then we need to fast on their behalf so that the power of God may increase through us and upon them, through us. A number of years ago, I preached a message about Ohm's Law. Do you guys remember that? And how in your house, your voltage is always a constant 120 volts of pressure, right? Theoretical. Sometimes it fluctuates 118 to 120, but it's 120 volts of pressure. And so if the pressure is constant, how do you increase the power in a circuit? There's only one way. Lower the resistance. If you lower the resistance, the power goes up. It's, the, it's one of the laws of physics known as Ohm's Law. And it's what all your electricity, your hydrogrid, everything is based on the concepts of Ohm's Law. But I'm here to tell you this morning that what's true in the laws of physics is also true in the laws of the spirit. That if you lower your resistance, you will increase the power of God in and through your life. That God can move through somebody who's lowered their resistance to him. And where does that resistance comes from? come from? It doesn't come from our spirit, it comes from our flesh. And we need to deny the flesh so that the spirit can rise up in power and we can see victory in Jesus' name. That's why we fast. Amen? All right. Number six, because I'm running out of time. <laughs> yeah, Barry's got a roast in the oven. Don't want to spend too much time in fasting, right? Number six, pray for the harvest. Luke 10 and verse 2. 
Then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Everybody needs help from time to time. And the Lord needs our help to reap the harvest. He needs your help. Uh, You're saying, God needs my help. Yes, because his chosen methodology is to save the world through us. That he wants to work through us to reach others. That's, That's his way. And so he tells us in Luke... To that the harvest is plentiful. There's no, it, you know, we sometimes are always going on, oh, nobody wants to hear the truth. Nobody wants to hear the word. That's a bunch of bunk. Bible says the harvest is plentiful. Fields are white unto harvest. In other words, the wheat is ready to be reaped. The buds are in full blossom on the top of that stock. You can go and harvest that thing. It is ready. It's ready. What God's looking for is people who are willing to go out into the harvest field. And so he said, pray for people to go into the harvest. And I think that's a twofold prayer. First, pray for missionaries and evangelists to go, to be called into the harvest. But the other half of that prayer, the laborers, is a prayer over yourself, that you would get up and get going into the harvest fields. That Jesus is telling us the harvest is is ready for harvesting, but it needs you to go out and to harvest, to reap the harvest. Hallelujah. Make this your prayer. Here am I. Send me. Send me. Doesn't matter whether it's at work, the grocery store lineup. Be ready. Send me. I remember my wife and I were, we got tickets from my cousin to see the Toronto Blue Jays. And he had, he's a hockey scout. So he has good tickets to every sport. So he had, we were three rows up behind the Blue Jays dugout. So we were right, right where the action is, right? So we're sitting there. And this was not a, if Peter Smolders would hear, he would, he would say this is a terrible baseball game. Because the score ended up being 17 to 14, I think it was, for Toronto over the Texas Rangers. So this is a purist baseball person would just say that's terrible because it definitely was not a pitching duel. You know what I'm saying? Uh, pitching had nothing to do with this day. It was all about the bats. But if you've been to a Blue Jays game, I don't know if they still do this, but every time they get a home run, they'd have these fireworks that would go off. It was just spectacular. There was more going on that day than you could possibly imagine. Balls popping into the stands, fireworks going off and everything else. And I'm thinking, you know, this is a great time to be here. And Sherry's sitting beside me and she's witnessing to a lady all the way through it. This poor lady sitting there, and she, she came to this thing burdened in her spirit, but Sherry is walking with that revelation in her that she's to reap the harvest no matter where she goes, to pray without ceasing. A lot of these things, she's, so she's sitting there, and she just strikes up a conversation with this lady. If we're there, we would just, as guys, we just go, hey, dude, what's up? You know, good to see you. Jays are doing good this year, right? <laughs> you know, that's the kind of conversation we have. No, no, not Sherry. She's asking about her kids, asking about this, asking about that. The next thing you know, the lady unfolds like a flower, and she's crying there, and Sherry's talking with her and everything else. I'm like, really? I'm like, wasn't the game great? Oh, I don't know. I didn't really pay much attention to the game. How could you ignore it? But, you know, things like that can be ignored when you're listening to God. It was just an incredible reminder to me to be ready in season and out of season to reap that harvest. Amen? Because the fields are ripe 
They're ready for harvest. Hallelujah. <laughs> finally, everybody say finally. Number seven. A real practical thing about prayer is this. Pray with a thankful heart. Pray with a thankful heart. Philippians 4 and 6 says, be anxious. That means don't worry. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I'm, you know, this whole thing about COVID is, I think, an interesting journey for the church. For people who are more cavalier, it's been a test of your ability to love whether you believe everything or anything that the government tells you or not. But for people who have taken everything very seriously and, 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 and who are doing everything they can to help others, the fear when you, when you walk at that is that you can, you can become this victim of, of a tremendous amount of weight and a tremendous amount of fear when the Bible says to be anxious about nothing. I, when it says for nothing... I think it means nothing. You know, it means don't worry about it. Jesus said, who of you by worrying can add a single day to your life? The answer is nobody. And so as Christians, we're to be orchestrators of peace. We're not to be out there picking a fight with anybody over it, but we're not to be worried about it either. We're to be people who are at peace. And so he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. With thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 2.1, Therefore I exert you, first of all, the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in prayers day and night. Philemon 4, or Philemon verse 4, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Do you see how thankfulness and prayer went hand in hand for Paul? That, that prayer was to be a posture of thankfulness. And one of the things he was most thankful for was for all the people that he prayed for. He was thankful for them, thankful for the people who pray for this kind of almost makes me think if, especially if Paul's the one who said to pray for your enemies and along with Jesus and said, you know, do that. Um, maybe Paul was thankful even for his enemies. Thankful for those that just by their iron sharpening my iron presence, that they had an impact on my life. They shaped me. My life has been shaped by those who dislike me as much as by those who like me. Those who said negative things against me sometimes because I just went and said, fine then, I'll just, I'll do it anyway. You say it can't be done, I'll do it. How many of you ever had those moments? Sure you have. And so you end up being shaped by somebody who was opposed to you, but you're still, you're still being shaped by them. Well, here Paul's telling us to be thankful for all of those influences in our life and to be thankful in prayer. Thankful in prayer. I think we're to thank God for our family. We're to thank God for our friends. We're to thank God for our enemies. We're to thank God for the brethren. We're to thank God for all the men and women in our life. We are to be thankful for them in our lives. What does that tell us? Why are we so thankful for all of these people? I think it reminds us of a few things. First of all, you're not alone. Secondly, you do not work alone. 
Why are you thankful for all these people around you? Because you don't work alone. One of the greatest reasons why I think people who are, you know, well-known in ministry, right, have a huge ministry, one of the things that ends up being their undoing is that they think that they're the only ones that can do it. And nothing can be further from the truth. You do not work alone. Number three, you do not carry the burden and the weight of whatever situation you're going through alone. That we do not get the credit alone. And that we do not love God alone or by ourselves. Rather, we are part of a family. Your faith is not meant to be lived out alone. There's a lot of people that nowadays that say, well, you know, you don't have to go to church. You know, you can have church in your house or you can, you know, where there are two or more gathered together than, than he is in your midst and on and on and on. And all of that's true. But, but the reality is, the same Bible says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together or as some are in the habit of doing. But do it all the more as you see the great day of his return approaching. That we weren't meant to live our faith in isolation. And you might say, well, I don't need those other people. I would like to debate that with you. But let me just ask you this. Okay, so let's suppose you're a self-sufficient, you know, really healthy, robust, whole person, and you don't need those other people. Okay, but maybe they need you. That when you cut yourself off from the body, you cut the gift off that you are to other people. You are called to be a blessing. You are called to serve them. You're called to invest in them. You're called to give to them. It's hard to do that when you're doing it by yourself. And let's not forget that the term, I do it myself, comes from a two-year-old. Just saying. Just throwing that out there. It comes from a two-year-old. It takes a man or a woman, full-grown, to acknowledge their need of others and to be willing to put aside their own preferences and, and ideas and everything else to work together. It takes an adult to work together. It takes a two-year-old to say, I can do it myself. Hello? That's all for free. Okay. Stand with me this morning. Let's go through that seven again. Number one. You have not because you ask not. Number two, pray without ceasing. Number three, oh, and I forgot number three. I didn't even do number three. I just realized I completely skipped number three. My goodness. And now we're at a time. It was pray in the spirit and with understanding. Why didn't somebody say, what about number three? Yeah, anyway, yeah. Everybody said, well, we missed it. Very quickly, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit and with understanding? To pray with understanding, let's tackle that one first. Praying with understanding means to pray from the Word. It doesn't mean to pray with an understanding of your circumstances or anything silly like that. You know, it's, I mean, God already knows your circumstances. And, and you know, and to pray with understanding doesn't mean, well, yeah, I'm praying with the knowledge that I need a job or I'm praying with the knowledge that my friend needs to get saved. That's such a bunch of bunk. To pray with understanding means to pray according to the Word of God. And there's so many verses that talk about that, that, that to live with understanding, read through the Proverbs with everything within you, go to his word, gain understanding, gain wisdom. What is understanding? It's to pray with the knowledge of the word of God. So we pray with understanding. We pray according to the word of God, but then sometimes the word doesn't talk about what you're going through. 
the word is a perfect revelation, but it's not a complete one. Even Luke acknowledged that. He said, if everything that Jesus said and did was written down, there wouldn't be enough books to contain it. So everything there is to know about God is not written in the Bible. How many know that? Right? He's bigger than the Bible. The Bible is a, is a perfect revelation, but it's an incomplete one. There's so much more to God than what's in the Bible. And because that's true, there are things you're going to come up against that the Bible, you, praying the Bible is not going to necessarily nail it. So you got to pray in the spirit. You got to come to God and you got to begin to just pray in that heavenly language, pray in the spirit. And when you do, when you do, the Bible says the, pray, the spirit himself makes intercession for you and you end up praying the will of God in that situation perfectly. So when I know not how to pray, I pray in the spirit. And the reason I don't know how to pray is because the word may be not saying anything specific about it, but now I got to turn to the spirit and let the spirit pray. That's what the difference is. There, I got that out. Okay. Number three was pray in the spirit and with understanding. Number four is pray for your enemies. Number five, some things only happen through prayer and fasting. Number six, pray for the harvest. Number seven, pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Man, you put this stuff in action. It's going to change your life. Now, how I want to end the service in this series is simple. This morning, today, if over the last four months, you've been hearing God call you to a deeper life of prayer, to take advantage of what's been made available to you, to not take it for granted, take it for advantage of it. If God's speaking to you and you realize I'm called, I'm commissioned to prayer, and I want to go deeper in prayer than I've ever went before. There's lots of room up here. I want you to come in. This is a commission or a call upon the house to be a people of prayer. By coming forward, we're making a commitment to God that, Lord, if you've been praying five minutes, then you've got to double it at 10. If you've been praying 10, you've got to double it at 20. If you're already praying an hour, God bless you, but uh, there's always room for more. Amen? But daily, maybe some of you say, I, I, I don't pray for between Sundays. Then for you, it's daily. God's calling you to prayer. It's time to begin now. Now is the day. Now is the day we enact those seven practical things of prayer. So if God's speaking to you and you know your call, I want you to run up here right now and stand with me and, and walk in this commission to prayer that God's calling us to. Come on, church. Praise the Lord. Amen. Move in tight, folks. Make room for people. That's it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Today, we're answering God's call to prayer. God is calling each and every one of you to the deepest life of prayer that you've ever lived or experienced. We are at a, a stage where I believe Christ is coming back soon. And I believe there's an end time harvest that God wants to see reaped. And it's going to be reaped by a people of power. People who have walked deeper in prayer than ever before, who have lowered their resistance to God through prayer and fasting, and who have seen the work of Holy Spirit increase in their life. That's who we are today. And you've responded to a call to that life of prayer. You need to make it daily. I mean daily. You need to make it passionately. You need to make it 
filled with times of fasting and worship. You need to make it in the spirit and with understanding. You need to pray for your enemies. These seven things we've talked about today, we need to implement in prayer. And as we go forth as a people empowered by prayer, walking and carrying the presence of God by prayer, our world is about to be shifted and changed. Everywhere you go, God will give you an authority and a grace to be able to carry out what he's called you to do. So I want you today to take your hands like this in a posture of surrender to God. And I want you to repeat after me this morning. If some of you in the seat, you, you weren't able, you've got kids with us or whatever, you weren't able to come up, but you can do it right from your seat this morning. Just put your hands out before the Lord and respond to this this morning. Are we okay? <laughs> and respond with me this morning. My Father, I've heard the call. I've heard your voice speaking to me, calling me into your presence. And today, April 24th, 2022, I dedicate my life to the calling of prayer. I will pray daily. I will pray by faith, expecting you to answer. I will pray without ceasing. I will pray for my enemies. I will pray uh, with understanding through the word of God. And I will pray in the spirit. <laughs> I will pray with thanksgiving in my heart. I will fast. However often you call me to fast. And I will pray for the harvest. Father, I thank you for the calling to prayer. And I say yes to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now lift up your hands and thank him this morning. Thank him this morning. And begin to just thank him for the call that he's placed on your life to be a call of prayer. You might say, you know what, but I'm called as an evangelist or I'm called uh, as, as a giver or I'm called with and given a gift of, of serving. It doesn't matter. Whatever our gift is, we're all called to pray. And this morning we surrender to this fresh call of prayer on our lives and on our house. And Father, we respond by saying, yes, God, I will be at your call every day to spend time with you in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for your call to prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, look up here. So practically, what are some things that you can also do in addition to this? Praying every day being in the word every day. One of the other things is when your church gets together to pray, join them. We've been praying on Saturday nights at six o'clock. We're praying for the service the next day. And we've been having some amazing times of prayer, usually with anywhere from 20 to 35 people here on Saturdays. But if everybody came out and said, I know it's a commitment sometimes with family and kids, you can't make it, but I understand that. This is not a guilt thing. This is a, of an impassioned plea thing that you would come and join us with prayer. And we've been having families come out, entire families come out, and their kids are praying with us, and God is just doing an amazing thing. But we invite you to come and pray. You know, another thing you can do is you can come early for church. 
It's going to shock you up, but you know, church starts at 10. You don't, I know it's, it's shocking, but, and you don't have to be the last one here. You can, you can break that off in your life. You can actually be here early and you can, even if all you do is you come in, you grab a cup of coffee and you sit and you just begin to pray that the presence of the Lord would be experienced here in people's lives. And that you'd pray your own heart would be prepared for, for the worship and for the word. You'd be amazed at what begins to happen when we begin to pray. Hello? Are you hearing me this morning? Tuesday, first Tuesday of every month, which is this Tuesday, we also have a, a corporate time of prayer. The body gathers together for prayer. And unlike on Saturday where we're praying specifically for the service, on Tuesday night, first of the month, we pray, we will pray for needs that people have. We pray for is it next Tuesday? Yeah, it's next Tuesday. What are you talking about? This Tuesday is only the 26th. So next a week from Tuesday. So uh, that's what happens when I listen to Barry in the middle of a sermon. I got to just stay focused on the Lord. <laughs> but but what I'm saying is you gather together at, at that corporate prayer time. There's a time for to receive ministry, time to be prayed for, time to pray for your neighbors, all kinds of different things that we pray for on that night. But make prayer a tangible part of your life. Amen. Amen. Thank you for taking this journey with us. In a couple weeks, we're going to start a series about principles of the kingdom of God. We talked in 2014. I can't believe it's how long ago. Uh, I, I introduced for the first time to this house uh, what the Bible says about the kingdom of God. And uh, it was that long ago, eight years ago. I couldn't believe it when I looked it back the other day. It was eight years ago. So we're going to talk about principles of the kingdom of God. And I believe that there are principles that we need to live out, and we're going to talk about what those are as we gather together uh, over the next number of months. And I'm very excited about this. I'm about as excited about this as I was about prayer. And as we continue to pray over the services, revelation of the kingdom is going to increase in people's minds and minds. It's going to be powerful. And, And understanding the kingdom of God changes everything. It changes everything. Amen. Thank you for being with us. It's a quarter to. Um, if you didn't buy something from the kids selling stuff for baking today for the youth on the way in, buy it on the way out. Make sure the table's empty. Uh, even if you don't like stuff like sugar and, and desserts, buy it for your neighbor. You know what I'm saying? Just make sure you clear it out. God bless you. Have an amazing week. And we'll see you on Saturday morning. If you're coming for the work beat, make sure you register so we know how many to cook for. We don't want you to work on an empty stomach.